So I'm not a big fan of internet fighting. I just don't really feel compelled to argue with people in comment sections about politics or the other myriad of things people tend to disagree about these days, which is almost everything. But I will say that if there's one topic I have gotten into more internet disagreements over, it would have to be canning safety. I mean, every single time I bring this up on my blog or on my Facebook page or in my Facebook groups, uh, I always tend to get quite a bit of interesting feedback, quite a bit of pushback. And I've talked about this in previous episodes. It's no secret that I like to follow the data and the science when it comes to canning. And even though I'm pretty lax in the other cooking I do, you know, I'll add ingredients, subtract ingredients, change recipes, skip different steps. Like when it comes to canning, I don't do that. I'm, I'm pretty black and white. But in today's episode, I wanted to kind of take this topic to the other side of things. And I wanted to play devil's advocate for a bit and talk about, you know, when can you push the boundaries of canning recommendations? When can you live on the edge? When can you go into those gray areas? When can you change the recipes and add ingredients and not have to worry about it uh, hurting the safety of the food? Because there is a time and place when it is appropriate. So I am joined today by a canning expert, Angie Schneider, who lives on a small homestead along the Texas Gulf Coast with her husband and children. For over 25 years, they have sought to reduce their dependence on commercial products and the grocery store by growing food, living a DIY lifestyle, and cooking simple, tasty meals from scratch. Angie shares her journey on her site, schneiderpeeps.com, and she has authored the book, The Ultimate Guide to Preserving Vegetables and Pressure Canning for Beginners and Beyond. This was a super fun conversation. Uh, Angie and I are pretty similar in our thoughts, but she also gives some really cool suggestions on how you can keep your family safe with the food you're preserving, but also, you know, bend the rules where appropriate. So without further ado, here's the episode. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Hey, Angie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jill. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I think this is a really important topic, uh, one that generates quite a bit of controversy on the internet. I know I've found that whenever I talk about this, I get a lot of feedback. I'm sure you have probably experienced similar. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, you know, people who've been listening to this podcast for a while know that I'm a, a stickler. I'm pretty black and white for canning safety and following recommendations from, you know, National Center for Home Food Preservation. I do think botulism is something you shouldn't mess around with. Um, once you understand the science of it, I feel like it's pretty obvious why we do the things that we do. But that being said, there are times when you can push the boundaries and you can get into those gray areas of canning and you don't have to worry about it potentially hurting you or your family. So I thought it would be fun to explore those ideas uh, today. And, and I know when you speak to this, you often, you, you talk about uh, like the two kind of worlds of where you can push and where you can't. Could you kind of dive into that a little bit for us? Sure. I think um, for me, the, the dividing line is if the 
recommendation is a quality recommendation or a safety recommendation. If it's a quality recommendation, I feel free to kind of do what I want to do. And then if it's a safety recommendation, I absolutely follow it to a T. So a quality recommendation would maybe be if you're making, um, you know, a, a berry jam. So we, we have wild dewberries here and we, we forage them during the summer. And so when I make dewberry jam, I just put all the berries in the, a big pot, add as much sugar as I want. The sugar isn't what preserves jam. Um, it, you know, it's the canning that preserves the jam. So you can make a low sugar jam or a high sugar jam. So, you know, all of that, you don't really have to follow a specific recipe. It's a high acid food. What you do have to do, though, is you have to put it in hot, clean jars and you have to process it for in a water bath canner with an inch of water over it for at least 10 minutes. Um, and then, you know, you pull it out. So, um, so to me, that's a quality recommendation. I can make the, the high acid jam however, you know, I want it to, to, to be because the fruit is high acid. You don't have to worry about botulism um, being in the jars at all. Um, but if it's a safety recommendation, for instance, canning um, low acid foods like most vegetables or any vegetable that's not um, pickled as a low acid food. So canning those or meat or legumes, you know, beans, all of that really needs to be done, has to be done in a, um, in a pressure canner. So to me, those are the differences. So it's important to know why, the why behind the rule. Absolutely. So yeah, quality versus actually the safety to acid right. and things like that. Um, a little bit of a, a tangent here. You mentioned the jam and processing it in a water bath canner. One thing I see recommended on the internet a lot, even by some fairly prolific bloggers, is the um, flip upside down jam method. Or yeah. sometimes they do it with tomato sauce. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I don't practice that. However, when I started canning at the uh, in the early 90s, that was the recommendation. Um and so the first year of canning, I did do that because that's what was on the sure gel packet um, insert. But then after that, it wasn't. And so um, I think that when we know better, we do better. You know, that's what I always tell my kids. Well, now that we know better, we do better. And so um, I think that that's important. We change with the time. One thing I think where people get confused or messed up is that Several things changed when they stopped recommending inverted canning for, for jams and pickles. And one of those things that changed was that there was no longer the requirement to sterilize the jars if they if you were pressure if you were canning for longer than 10 minutes. And so, yes, we keep the jars hot, but you don't have to boil them for 12 minutes to sterilize them like you did before. And so my thought process is, is that to make things easier for people, to make things more consistent, the USDA has said, okay, so you don't have to do this, this um, sterilizing of the jars anymore, but you absolutely have to, to water bath can them, process them for at least 10 minutes. You know, um, when we saw our grandmothers turning those jars upside down, I guarantee you they boiled their jars for 10 minutes. You know, they didn't just keep them hot. 
And, and so to me, there's no difference in, um, in time. You either put it on at the front end or you put it on at the back end. So why not just go ahead and do it on the back end um, and do it the, the more modern approved scientific way that is pretty guaranteed. I don't know. I've never had a jar of, of jam or jelly be bad. Have you, I mean, have you? I have not. No, never. Yeah. But how many, but I have put like where I've had extra jam or jelly that didn't quite fill a jar. And so I've just put it in a, in a, a random jar that maybe that was hot, but not sterile, stuck it in the fridge and it got pushed in the back of the fridge. And in a few months we open, we find it and it's got mold on it. Yes. And so that will happen on your, on your shelves even faster. So why take that risk? You know, 10 minutes is nothing and you don't even need a, a, an official water bath canner. You just need a big pot that will fill, you know, cover the, where you can fill it up and cover the jars by at least an inch of water. Um, you know, I put a towel when I don't use a the, the canner, you know, you need to put a towel or something down at the bottom to keep the glass off the bottom of the pot. But there really is not any reason to not process them, process yeah. them. Um, that being said, I know in Europe, they don't process them in a water bath canner, um, but they also don't make low sugar jams and jellies. <laughs> Okay. They make full sugar and the sugar does help preserve it a little bit. They also have cooler climates. I think that plays a part, you know, in, in traditionally what people have done. So, um, so yeah, it is something that our grandmothers probably did, but they probably did it a little differently than we remember or think they yeah. did. And I think that's an important thing that you mentioned, like the, the science can can change. And we, when we know better, we do better. And revelations of what, you know, how things are working mm-hmm. do come to light. Cause I feel like that is pushback that I've gotten when people are like, well, 20 years ago, this is how it was, how everyone did it. So it was fine then. And it's fine now. Um, which you know, I, I think the other tricky part is in the homesteading community, which I kind of love this about the community, but can, it can also be frustrating. There's a distrust for authority, which is sometimes is great. Like we need that sometimes, but sometimes I'm like, not all organizations are out to get you. And I, for, in my personal opinion, the national center for like home food preservation is not out to get you. It's just an organization that's trying to give you some testing results and data. So for me, it's like weighing out, you know, the, the, the food pyramid, which is telling me to eat a bunch of vegetable oils and white bread all the time versus like them just telling me here's a better way to can jam. Like, I don't know. You got to sort that out, I guess. Right. And, and I agree with that. We don't want to be rebels just to be rebels. There's other things that are honestly more important that we use that energy (laughs) for than you know, bucking the system on can, you know, whether we're going to act, we're going to water bath can or jams or not. But, um, you know, interesting. I remember my grandmother used the paraffin wax a lot. And, um, when we would open it, a lot of times she would just scoop off the, you know, if, if there was mold or whatever. And, um, so, you know, it, ru- it ruins your product. And yes, I know that people scooped it off and it was fine, but I don't really want to do that yeah. <laughs> for me or my family. You know, we, if, if I, if we went through another depression period and that's all the food we had, absolutely. I probably would take that risk, but 
that's not where we are today. And that's not a risk that I am willing to take for my family. And it's, it's kind of a, in my estimation, a silly risk to take. We have, we have the information. Um, and, and I will say this, when they stopped recommending to the use of paraffin wax, my grandmother stopped using it. Ah, okay. You know, I think that they used what they had based on the recommendations at the time. And a lot of them changed when, when the recommendations changed, they, um, you know, another thing too, that I see with my own, my own children, they have grown up with me every summer and even throughout the year canning and, and preserving food. And, um, so I have five adult children and a 12 year old and, I don't know that any of my adult children could do a whole canning process from memory based on what they have seen me do. So I think our perspective as children is different. So when we see, well, my granny did X, Y, or Z, well, did you really follow the entire process of what she did? Or do you just remember this one aspect? There's a big difference between just observing or even maybe helping with something and being the one that's completely responsible for the safety of that food. And so I don't know that our memories are completely accurate when we think about what our grandmothers did and did not do back in the day. So that's a good point as far as yeah, our memory is not necessarily being accurate. Cause I hear that so many times like, you're so much on the internet, you know, people will push back and say, well, my grandma did it this way, or my grandma did meat in a water bath can, or my grandma did green beans and without any acid in a water bath can, and she was fine. And yeah, the, sometimes our memories aren't what, you know, remembering those details. And sometimes you can get away with it. You right. can. Right. Right. And uh, you know, an interesting thing when I was doing research for the book, um, I, for the pressure canning book, I wanted to know, because I hear people say that, you know, that their grand, grandmothers did beans, green beans and, um, and meat in a water bath canner. And there was a time in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, where there was a recommendation for that, but it was not what we think. It wasn't, you know, for meat 90 minutes, it was for meat six hours in a water bath canner. Or they did something they called fractional canning. So they would process it for an hour in the water in the water bath canner on day one. Then they would put it back into the water bath canner on day two and process it for another hour. And then back into the water bath canner on day three and process it for another hour. And the idea was that on the first day, um, the first day or so, the botulism spores would begin to activate and create a toxin. Well, the botulism spores are not um, are not destroyed until you reach like 240 degrees, but the toxin is destroyed at boiling point, which is like 212. So they would destroy the toxin for three days in the jar <laughs> and help reassuring through after the third day. So. I don't see anyone ever mentioning that. They don't say, well, my grandmother boiled it for three days, an hour a day. They just say, I saw my grandmother boiling it in a water bath canner. I did not know that it was a method that existed. That is fascinating. And it's fascinating. Yeah. They had it figured out enough that they knew when the talk, when the spores and the toxins were activating, that's fascinating. Yeah, it okay, really yeah. is. And it's what they had at the time. Yeah. And then of course we have the, we have, honestly, the privilege of building on that knowledge 
that they that they have for us, you know. Um, so so yeah, if you I guess if somebody really wanted to push the envelope, that's what they would need to do. But it seems silly to do that. Yeah. Yeah, so. when we have the technology. You know, I always think about when when people are like, well, they did it this way. Well, you know, I always think about the example when, you know, um, there was that time when we didn't understand bacteria. And so they would autopsy corpses and then they would go deliver a baby and they couldn't figure out why the babies were dying. You know, like <laughs> we figure things out over time. Science can be very beneficial in those aspects. Right. So or, you like, know, my grandmother used a ringer washing machine for a very long time, well into my teenage years, but I am so thankful that I don't do that. And when she finally had the means to buy, to get an automatic washing machine, she did, you know, and she was happy. And I wonder sometimes how many of our grandmothers are just shaking their heads saying, why are you not embracing, um, you know, what, what science. And honestly, I think what God has given us to mm-hmm. free up our time and to make our family safer. So, yeah. yeah. It's a good balance. And we do have that luxury as modern homesteaders mm-hmm. and, and modern food preservationists. We get to choose, which I feel like is important. And some, sometimes people will come to me and, ex- and expect me to be like a reenactor or a full-on, you know, historian. I'm like, no, no, I have a washing machine and I have a dishwasher and I'm thankful for those things. And I like those things. And that's a trade-off. So I can have the washing machine do my clothes, but I can also go grow the garden. And that's, we have that luxury. Our grandparents didn't have that luxury. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the areas where you can, like in specifics, where you can change recipes, tweak recipes, push the the envelope a little bit. Um, yeah. Acids, for example, what are your thoughts on acids? Um, I think that is one of the, the, um, most fun ways that we can change the flavor of, of the foods that we're canning. Um, so acids would be vinegars, um, lime juice, lemon juice, um, and citric acid. And so, um, the, the rule, the safety rule is that the acid needs to be a 5% acidic, whatever you use needs to be 5% acidic. So if it's a vinegar, it needs to, we'll say that on the label. Um, lime juice and lemon juice will say that on the label. Um, you should not, unless you know for sure, like if you buy acid strips and you test your own lemon and lime juice that's freshly squeezed, you shouldn't use that for canning. You need to make sure that it's 5%. So we actually grow Meyer lemons here in Key Limes. And so I don't use those for canning. And unless I'm adding the, it just as a flavor, um, like I make a, a lemon um, and chicken soup. And so I, you know, I use our lemon juice home our homegrown lemon juice for that, because it's just for flavor. It's not to acidify, to make it safe. So, um, I think that's really a, a fun way. So like we like salsa, but we don't like vinegar in our salsa. So I just substitute it with lime juice because we love lo- the combination of of onion and tomato and lime. Um, for most of my canning, uh, tomato canning, I like um, citric acid because it doesn't impart any kind of flavor. I know that you like lemon juice in yours. I saw that on one of your mm-hmm. other podcasts that you prefer lemon juice. I think that's that's interesting. And so you can you can make it how your family likes it by just changing out the flavor of the acid. So 
And yeah, and no, no safety concern. What are your, what are your thoughts on the whole tomato? You know, people get frustrated sometimes when they're, they see those recommendations to add additional acid to their tomatoes for the water bath canner. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And you have to do it for the pressure canner too. Um, okay. So you, um, because that's how the times were developed. Okay. So I don't know that you can trust that if you don't add the extra acid, I don't know that you can trust the time, the processing times because all the tests were done with the added acid. And again, um, I like that neutral flavor of the citric acid. It tastes to me very much like store-bought to make canned tomatoes with that citric acid in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't, um, I I think it's another area that is silly to kind of bulk up, uh, you know, bulk up against it because it doesn't really matter. You know, um, citric acid is easy to find. Um, you know, we can find it in our local grocery store, even, especially now, I think maybe, you know, five or 10 years ago, it might've been a little harder, but, um, but, you know, with the internet and with local stores, um, really supporting, I think, canning and home preserving now more so than they ever have in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, it's easy to find, of course you can use, you know, vinegar or lime juice or lemon juice. Um, and just to play with different ones and see which one your family likes best and then go with that one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about folks, you know, sometimes I get questions like people are on a low sodium diet or a low sugar diet and they're like, can I take the salt out of this canned recipe is, you know, what are your, what do you do there? Yeah. So, um, salt and sugar, while they are preserved, natural preservers, when we're talking about canning, it doesn't, it's not what preserves the food. The actual process of canning them, the jars is what preserves the food. And so you can remove the salt, you can remove the sugar. One thing that salt and sugar does do is it helps with the quality of the food. So it will help, um, it'll help that like vegetables stay greener or brighter, help fruit stay, you know, um, have a prettier color. If you've ever tried to um, can like say strawberries with no sugar in them. <laughs> they're pretty, they're not very appealing. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> so you can, you can remove them. Um, for a lot of our like pressure canned stuff, a lot of times I will just add, um, I will add the salt later. So um, it's not a lot of salt. I think there's probably better ways of, of con- limiting your salt intake than, um, you know, having food that, that really discolors in the jar. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of my thought. Um, last year I had the, one of the owners of Redmond salt. Do you, are you familiar with them? They're yeah, my favorite them. salt company, yeah. um, <laughs> but we talked a little bit about that and, you know, there is such a push. I feel like with a lot of folks for low sodium, low sodium and demonizing salt. And I don't know, in my uneducated opinion, I'm kind of like, you know, maybe leave the teaspoon of salt in your jar of green beans and stop eating the hot dogs and the ramen noodles. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like if we're going to pick a culprit, I'm feeling like it's probably the processed food and the McDonald's, not the stuff you're cooking in your, in your own kitchen. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I okay. love salt. That's the salt that I use for everything, um, pretty much. And so, and that's another thing too. If you, whatever salt you use in your canning, it just needs to be a salt that doesn't have any anti-caking agents added to it. It just needs to say salt. 
on yeah. the label. So you can use sea salt or you can use Redmond's. Um, Redmond's tends to sometimes discolor the water a little bit because it's got the extra minerals, but it's fine. I mean, that's what we use. So mm -hmm. um, you don't have to have a special, you don't have to buy a special canning salt to can. Yeah. And I have seen that in the, like, like you said, the grocery stores are getting really friendly towards canning, but which is awesome. But they also have sometimes things and like, you don't actually need that and you don't actually need that, you know, you right. don't have to have it. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed, and I hope this is okay to say, <laughs> I've noticed, because I've been canning a long time, like almost 30 years. And so I've had the ball blue book for, you know, go, I've got several copies going way back. One thing, a trend that I have noticed with Ball, and of course they also, of course they also own Kerr, is that they are replacing a lot of their recipes with spice blends that they make. Oh. And so they say, so for pickles, it says, you know, uh, like here, here's how many cucumbers you need. Here's your your vinegar, and then you know, two tablespoons Ball dill pickle spice. And so mm -hmm. when, when you hear it from other people, oh, you absolutely have to follow a, a, um, you know, a tested recipe, a lot of new canners think, well, I absolutely then have to buy ball pickling spice because that is what the recipe says. And this is the approved recipe I'm following. So I push back a little bit on the whole only using lab tested approved as their written recipes for that reason, because I see that um, as companies will and do that they grow their product line and they want to, you know, promote their other product lines. But it is, to me, it is a little deceiving in the sense that you, you can change out the spices. You don't have to use a name brand spice. Just because yes. the recipe says that. That's a great distinction. So let's say someone is doing pickles for the first time. They have their ball book. They're following the recommendations of how much acid to add to the, you know, the ratio of acid to water. Right. So then, and they don't want to get the pickling packet from the grocery store. They have the freedom to add basically whatever they want to that recipe. Right. So they could add um, any dried herb. It needs to be dried. Um, Fresh herbs contain water, which we could change the, the low acid, the high acid ratio. So um, you can, so you just, you can add whatever dried herbs you want. So you can add, and another thing that I found when I was doing research for the book is that it is perfect, perfectly safe to add one clove of garlic per jar of whatever you're canning, whenever you're canning. Mm. So it didn't say how big the jars, <laughs> that's yeah. one for, you know, it was just, it was a, um, it's on the ask an expert website, you know, which is done by the county extension agents. So I don't, you know, it didn't say if it was for pint jars or what size jars. So, uh, you know, a clove of garlic isn't going to change. There's not enough water in it to change the, the ratio of, of acid to no, to low acid foods. So, so you can add, um, you know, dried dill, um, some dried onion, if you wanted onion in there, you could add, or you could replace some of the cucumber with onion, um, weight for weight, you know, you would need to weigh it out. Um, so really any dried spices would be perfectly fine. Um, mustard seed, dill seed, dill weed. Those are probably my favorites that I put in my pickles. 
So same, same. And that is good news about the garlic because we all need more garlic in our <laughs> I mean, I know there are a few people who hate garlic, but I just didn't I know. Really, I don't My understand. Thinks I maybe like garlic a little too much, yeah. but I just love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never too much garlic. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, the number one salt I use in all of my homestead cooking, canning, and fermentation. I've learned over the years that not all salt is created equal, and having the good stuff really does make a difference in your culinary adventures, especially when it comes to canning or fermentation. If you use the general run-of-the-mill grocery store salt with its iodine and its sugars and its additives, it can cause your canned or fermented foods to have off flavors, textures, and colorations. So it really does make a difference to get the good stuff. Redmond's is the only salt mine in the good old US of A, and I love that they use sustainable practices in their mining, and it contains 60 plus trace minerals that not only make it good for you, but it actually tastes better too. Since I can't mine salt here on our homestead, obviously, I like to buy salt in bulk because that saves me some cash and it never goes bad. I actually bought a 25 pound bag of Redmond salt last summer and I'm still using it. I just keep it in a bucket down in my basement pantry and it's still going strong. Right now, Redmond's is offering 15% off your entire order just for my podcast listeners. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt and use the code homestead to snag your discount. Now, back to our episode. What about vegetable swapping or mm-hmm. adding vegetables? Like I remember one of the very first times I canned tomato sauce. I didn't understand the science of any of this. And I remember that I had read or heard that you were only supposed to add like certain numbers of peppers or onions to the tomato sauce, like to keep the ratios. I'm like, I don't understand. And this is stupid. So I'm just going to add as much <laughs> pepper and onion as I want. It's going to be like a vegetable sauce and no one died. But now looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, Jill, I can't believe you did that. So can you speak to, uh, if you want to add more vegetables or less vegetables, what that does to your recipe? Yeah, sure. So I think we've all done that. Um, and no, and fortunately no one died, but that doesn't mean that we continue doing it. <laughs> yes. Amen. So, um, when you look at a recipe, they like, so for tomatoes, if you, um, if you're doing a tomato, like a spaghetti sauce, or you're doing a salsa, you're, even though they're technically considered a neutral food, the tomatoes would be like your high acid food, you know, quote unquote, high acid food. So if you take the onion and peppers and all the other stuff that's added to it. Um, however much of that is, that is all the low acid foods you can add to it. So if it's a total of three cups of, um, you know, diced pep- bell peppers and, and, and three cu- and, you know, of onions combined, then you can do any, um, you could do two cups of, of onions and one cup of bell peppers. You could do all onions if you don't like bell peppers. So you with you have a three cup range that you can you can play with with the low acid foods or the ratio of peppers to to um, to onions. And so, like if you're making a salsa and you want it spicier, you can either use a hotter pepper than what is called for, or you can use more pepper and less onion. 
but it needs to stay within that ratio to what your tomatoes are. Um, you wouldn't want to swap in something that's like more of a real vegetable vegetable. Like you wouldn't want to put in um, green beans for those three cups. Um, you know, you want to stay within whatever the vegetables are called for in that recipe. So I could do like a red onion instead of a yellow onion or a sweet onion instead of a spicy onion or a poblano instead of a uh, whatever Anaheim pepper, but I don't want to go completely out of those categories. Right, right. That would be yeah. my, you know, that that would be my recommendation. And, th- and I think that there's enough approved recipes that you can learn to play with um, that you should be able to find something that's very similar to what your family already likes. And then you just play around with the spices. Mm-hmm. But, um, there is like a, um, you know, you can make mixed vegetables, you know, just jars of various vegetables. And when you do that, um, you, there's a few rules that you have to play by the same thing. If you're going to can your own soups, And one of them is that you can't add any vegetable that doesn't have recommendations for canning all by itself, with the exception of a little bit of onion and garlic to add to that, you know, to add for flavor. So you can't put squash in a home, like zucchini, in a home canned vegetable mix, unless it's one that's approved for that already. Like if you're just making your own at home, you wouldn't add... Um, you wouldn't add shredded cabbage to it. Because shredded cabbage isn't considered approved for canning on its own. Right, because it's not, yeah, approved for canning on its own. So, um, and then you would process the jars based on whatever the highest processing time of the individual vegetable would be. So if you had green beans, carrots, and corn, you would process it for the times for corn. Got it. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That's a good rule of thumb. What about when a lot of times folks will say, you know, I have this soup recipe, I have this, um, whatever, this dish that's like a family favorite that I made, made it up. How can I can it? And, or I'll get that question from the recipes in my cookbook a lot. Can I can this soup? What's your rule of thumb for that sort of situation? Right. So the national food for home, the national center for home food preservation actually has a great article on canning your own soup mixes. So again, this is where I think that we do a disservice from people when we say, oh no, you can't can anything that is not a specific lab tested recipe because that's not what these centers who do the testing say. So if you have your own soup, the thing with, with pressure canning that you have to be really mindful of is the density of the food um, because you've got to be able to have that heat go all the way through into the center of the jar. So um, if it's a soup, it cannot, it needs to be a brothy soup. It cannot have any kind of thickening agents, no flour, no grain, no rice, no pasta. None of that can be in the soup that you want to can. It also has to just include vegetables that are, um, that have their own um, rules for canning already, their own guidelines. So again, if it's got cabbage in it, it's not a candidate for for canning um, in your soup, your home soup mix, you um, 
when you can the soup, you have you fill it the jar like halfway with the solids and then the west, rest of the way with broth. So these are going to be very brothy soups as okay. opposed to filling it all the way with, you know, vegetables and just pouring your broth over it. So um, I think that is most of the rules that they have on there. So it is possible if you meet those guidelines. Um, one thing that we do is I can a lot of our soups. Um, and then I add things like I can a tomato and, or not tomato, a chicken and vegetable soup base. Then when I cook it, I can add noodles to it or I can add um, um, dumplings to make chicken and dumplings or I can serve it over rice. And so you add those starchy things at the serving time instead of at the beginning. Would the same go for dairy as well? Yes. No dairy. Thank you. Yeah. No dairy in there. So you would have to add that. Oh, and no pureed vegetables. There is, there is an exception to that. There is an approved um, carrot soup that is pureed before it's canned. And in my first book, I actually have that recipe in there with ginger added. Mm. Um, The original recipe was fennel and we were not big fennel fans. So we like ginger in our carrot soup. And so, um, but it's a really thin soup. And, and so you just want to be careful. So my butternut squash soup is just, you know, butternut that's been canned in cubes. Mm-hmm. And then you puree it when you're, when you're serving and you can add yes. the cream then. Yeah. There's ways around, you know, these, these recommendations, um, but they still fall within the guidelines of being safe and yeah, not just sure. doing whatever the, the heck I feel like doing because I'm can do that, you know? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think you're still get a lot of convenience and just food storage out of those. Maybe they're not completely done. The soup's not completely finished. You still have to add a few things, but it's still a heck of a lot better than starting from nothing on a weeknight when you're in a hurry for supper. So oh my goodness. it's it still going to benefit you. Yeah. It, soups is probably one of my absolute favorite things to pressure can because it really makes the weeknight meals go well. And I noticed that as my children got older, and they started taking lunches to work um, or even to school. It was so easy for them to grab a pint of stew off the counter, you know, out of the pantry and take that with them and heat up in the microwave instead of, you know, making a sandwich or, you know, eating fast food. Um, even when one of my sons went to college, um, that was the one thing he asked me to do was to can him a variety of soups that he could take and have so that he could just eat food that he knew he liked and not have to rely upon, you know, cooking it himself. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Um, okay. So we've talked a lot about uh, the places where you can get creative, (laughs) you know, dried herbs, making your own soup, swapping out vegetables, sugar, salt, acid swapping. What about like the cold, hard, fast, do not do this. Just period. Do not, do not can low, low acid foods in a water bath canner. (laughs) Amen. And we've talked about that, but you know, really, um, I have a couple of canners. You probably have more than one too. I have several pressure canners. I have an all American where I can double stack and it's super great, but you know, it's heavy. Mm -hmm. And, um, then I have last summer, I bought a Presto 
for like $80 at Walmart on a whim just to try it. I love it. And I'm thinking for $80, $80 is nothing, honestly. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, if you've, if your family normally goes out to eat, that's maybe twice, you know, maybe once. So you just don't do that for one week and you can buy a pressure canner that will make your food safe and save you so much money in the future. So really there's no reason to not use a pressure canner. Um, you can't ever reduce the acid. You can add more, but you can, you cannot reduce the amount of acid that, that is recommended for whatever product you're, you're canning. Um, you don't ever change the processing times. They are there for a reason. I am sure there's maybe a little wiggle room in there because they have to adjust for user error, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but don't rely on that. And, um, if you ever can't remember and set timers, that is, that is very important when you're canning because you won't remember, you'll get busy doing something and you won't remember, you know, when it started and when it actually came to pressure or when the water started boiling. And if you forget you can't just estimate, you have to start all over. You have to start at the yeah. beginning at zero. And so, um, so use a timer and don't try to change the processing time. So that, that also means make sure you have enough time to finish what you're wanting to do before you need to go to bed. You know, I know a lot of times it's hard. That, one, <laughs> that is hard. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes after dinner, I'm like, Oh, I have, look, I have all this, this extra soup. I should can it really fast. Oh, I've done that Go so quick. many times. <laughs> and then I'm up till one o'clock in the morning, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's fine, but you know, you you have to make that commitment. So don't don't try to fudge and go a little bit less. Um, don't change the headspace. Headspace is super important. It's important to leave enough headspace so that the um, the food that needs to expand can expand without overflowing. Um, it's also important to not leave too much because then you don't get enough pressure to push out all the oxygen that needs to come out of that can. Mm -hmm. So headspace is important. Um, we talked about already not pureeing low acid foods. Um, some people will say don't ever can with, um, oil or I, this is one thing I think is interesting because you see over and over, don't, don't can with butter. Don't put butter in anything. But then a lot of our jelly recipes call for butter <laughs> to reduce the foam. That's true. On the, so now you can't can butter. I've seen, you've probably seen this too on the yeah. internet where people are like canning sticks of butter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And I don't, I don't understand. Butter lasts forever yeah. in the refrigerator. I can't imagine it going bad. So um, I can't, I don't understand the reasoning for that. So, but you can't do that, but you can use, uh, you know, a little amount of oil in your, um, you know, in your canned goods. What you don't want to do is have so much oil that it keeps the jar from sealing. Like if it goes over and that's why headspace is so important too. If the jars bubble over, if you have too much oil, it will, um, you know, it'll uh, keep the seal from the lid from actually sealing. But I don't, you know, like when I make broth, I don't usually skim the broth, the the fatty stuff off. We use, pat, you know, we have pastured chickens. 
Yep. yep. Uh, and I just want everything that I paid for <laughs> to be in my jar. And so, um, so we don't do that. You can, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You absolutely can, but don't be afraid. Like that's one of those, what I would consider the other extreme dogma of, no, you absolutely cannot ever use any oil in any, you know, in anything. You must cut off every single piece of fat that's on every single piece of meat. And I think that that really promotes a lot of fear in people. And so we don't want to do that. We want to be safe. We want to be prudent, but we don't want to be fearful. Amen. So yeah. And like, even like I'm thinking of the canned meats that I've done, like it'll tell you to saute it or you can like saute the onions and a little bit of fat mm-hmm. or oil. It's just like, I've had that work happen. Like you said, where it, there's too much though. And, and then it causes a seal to get coated and it doesn't, but yeah, I think common sense rules the day there. I think that's right. The, right. And, and yeah. meats that are kind of dry anyway, like venison, um, you can actually just add some oil to the jar because they're oh. so dry is, I mean, that's an approved thing. So um, you know, because who wants really dry? <laughs> yeah. And I'm imagining it's going to soak that oil right up. Right. Exactly. And so, so it's important. I think that the most important thing that, that is understanding the why behind the rules and not just taking someone's word for it. Like if someone says, oh, well, this is safe or, oh no, you should never, never do whatever that you go look on, on safe sites yourself and try to find out um, what the the reasoning is so that you can have freedom within that reason, you know, within, when those, within those parameters. And the, um, the National Center for Home Food Preservation is a great site. The USDA has um, a book, The Complete Guide to Home Canning. Of course, Ball has several books. The um, University of Georgia has a So Easy to Preserve book um, that is just pretty much every bulletin they've ever written and a lot of recipes. The um, And then there's the Ask, Ask an Expert, which is done, like I said, from the county agent, extension agents, which is a great resource too. Um, I think it's important. Food safety is so important. And feeding our families, I truly think as, as, as whether you're a homesteader or just a mom is one of the most important things that we do for our families, you know, feeding them good food and get in, whether we've grown the food or we've bought the food that we're, we're making the most of that. And so um, I think it's really important that, that we understand the whys and that we're willing to do that work to dig deep um, and figure those out. Yes. I think well said. And I think that's a great place to, to wrap up. So great wisdom. Thank you, Angie. This was really fun. It was fun to explore (laughs) some of these, uh, topics, the gray areas. Can you remind everybody where they can find your books? Cause I'm sure they're going to want to go check them out. Sure. Uh, my books are at pretty much every major retailer book, bookseller and at, um, independent bookstores. If the, book that came out last summer was the ultimate guide to preserving vegetables and the new book that's coming out in a few weeks is um, pressure canning for beginners and beyond my site is schneiderpeeps.com and if you and there's of course there's links to the books you know as soon as you go to schneiderpeeps.com that's the first thing you see is links to those books and on all social media I'm just at schneiderpeeps okay fabulous Yeah. Well, everybody go check out Angie and all the amazing content she has. And thank you again 
so much. Thank this was you. This was so fun, Jill. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening along, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got as much out of it as I did. And hey, if you're feeling inspired to start preserving more food after listening to all these amazing interviews on the podcast this season, my Canning Made Easy program is one of the very best places to start. I created this course several years ago when I realized that a ton of people were getting stuck with canning processes and canning safety methods because there's just so much information online and it can feel super overwhelming. And I wanted to just make this process simple because canning does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary or uncertain. It can be something you do just while you're in the kitchen working on other things sometimes. It doesn't have to be an ordeal. And so I created this program of videos, ebooks, and charts that has since allowed thousands of you to learn how to can without the stress. And this year, I'm actually adding something extra special to the program. I'm going to be sending anyone who joins the program a box, an actual physical box from my homestead to yours of some of my favorite canning accessories. I'm going to be throwing in a couple of my favorite reusable canning lids, you know, so the canning lid shortage just doesn't have to be a concern. I'll send you a sample of my favorite sea salt that I use for all of my preserving, a flip top to convert your mason jar into all sorts of handy pantry storage, and probably my favorite part of all is my very much requested old-fashioned on-purpose kitchen towel. You may have seen it hanging in my kitchen in some videos or photos. It has the old-fashioned on-purpose manifesto on it. A ton of people have messaged me after seeing photos and said, Jill, where do I get the towel? And we finally got a batch of them printed up. And we'll be tucking that into your little goodie box whenever you join the course. So to check out the course, all that's offered and see what's in my little box that I'll be sending you, just head on over to learnhowtocan.com to have a look. 